This is an ABC podcast. So I found that what looks like, I don't know what that is, inside of a bit of plastic packaging or something. It looks like some biscuit thing. Yeah. The ends of biscuit. Oh my God, what's this? I think that's the um, top of a pen. Oh, okay. Yesterday I found, it was actually half a toothbrush. Oh, gosh. It was, it was a purpley blue colour. It just makes you wonder how it all gets to this beach. Shall we head down this way? Yeah. Okay. Where are we? We're in the very north of Australia, literally where the ancient Daintree rainforest meets the Coral Sea and the Great Barrier Reef. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. It's one of my favourite parts of the world, and I try to get up here as often as possible. It's an unspoiled stretch of coastline. Well, except for the plastic. I often wonder how, you know, do people just turf it off the side of their boat or is it coming from other beaches somewhere else where the tides bring it? It's just hard to imagine sometimes the things you find. But there's always lots of little bits of blue plastic for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. It's and amazing though, isn't it? Because it's like if you stand here, it's a pristine beach. There's no sign of human habitation until you look down <laughs> and then you see it in the sand, all these little bits of plastic all over the place. What I've noticed is it seems to be on that high tide mark. If you come down to the beach and you can see where all the debris is from the different high tides, and you're right, then you'll see a whole line. If you just watch it, look at your fellow the line up the beach, and it's just a little line of little purple, blue and white specks. Should we be surprised? Well, it is, of course, a global problem. And many other beaches around the world are daily littered with far more refuse than my little stretch of sand. The UN Environment Programme reckons more than 9.2 billion tonnes of plastic has been produced since the 1950s, when it first became a household and consumer staple. Now, that's an impossibly huge number to visualise, but that in itself is telling. In this episode of Future Tense, we'll hear about a citizen science program that's trying to give ordinary people a meaningful role in cleaning things up. It's called the Big Microplastic Survey, and it's led by this guy. My name is David Jones. I'm the CEO and founder of the marine conservation charity Just One Ocean here in the UK. But before we get to the Big Microplastic Survey, let's hear David's reaction to the news that 175 countries have now agreed to the creation of a new international treaty. A treaty the United Nations hopes will end global plastic pollution. David Jones. I think the first thing is, well, it's about time. This has been a, a problem that's not just appeared. So I welcome it in that respect because it is going to take a holistic and strategic solution if we're going to find a solution at all. I suppose, you know, looking at, at the resolution, there is some good stuff in there. It looks at technical and financial assistance. I think importantly, it decides that there should be an international legally binding instrument. So that's one of the, the requirements, one of the strategic requirements of any solution. And I also think it's good because it recognises the fact that there are a lot of countries that 
you know, through no reason of their own, only economic sort of reasons, that they are unable to do what most of the other Western nations in particular can do to resolve the issue. So I think that's where the challenges will lie. How effective can it be given the the scale of the plastic problem that we have in the world? Well, I'm always slightly sceptical about the United Nations because you know, ultimately you have a group of countries, all of whom have national and international priorities which differ. And as we've seen with strategic development goals, you know, it, it's it's a very difficult thing to it's easy to say something. It's easy to draw a line on a map and say, this is now a marine protected area. It's not easy to stop people going in there and doing illegal fishing. So, you know, there are several challenges, but I welcome the fact that, you know, it's now recognized as an environmental issue, which is not quite on the scale of global warming, but is pretty significant and, and something that needs to be dealt with with alacrity. And they are talking about a treaty that will encompass all stages of plastics life cycle. I presume you would, uh, you would agree with that, that that is a, a priority to look at the whole life cycle. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the problems we've had is that we've emphasised on the downstream aspects. We've looked at solving the pollution problem by recycling the stuff we've thrown into the ocean or just left lying around. That's not holistic. That's not suitable. We need to look at all aspects of it. But I don't think it's it's not just the sort of the manufacturing and the production and the distribution. It's a whole range of strategic issues that need to be looked at. So that's the big UN Plastic Pollution Treaty, still a work in progress, but slated to be implemented sometime in 2024. Now to citizen science and the big microplastic survey. David Jones again. In 2008, 2009, people were sort of talking about this huge floating island of plastic in the Pacific, the size of Texas or three times the size of France or whatever. And and everybody said, oh, that's awful. We can go and pick it up. And quite clearly you couldn't. So that was when microplastics as an issue first appeared on the world stage. And looking at sort of the research that was being done in 2015, I think it was, there was a a technical body in the uh, European Union who identified action requirements or recommendations that needed to be done to tackle the problem. The first one was raising awareness. The second one was to increase our scientific knowledge about the scale of the problem, where it comes from, where it is, what it is. And thirdly, to try to sort of reconnect with the value of this product that's being thrown away, which shouldn't be. With a scientific background, I looked at that and I thought, well, we are trying to raise awareness. Everybody's talking about Blue Planet and that sort of stuff. But if you look at any of the, the research that's been done, it's not changing our habits. And that's borne out by the fact that plastic production increases by 3 or 4% every year in spite of all that we know. So the awareness thing quite clearly wasn't happening. And the other thing is that to gain more scientific knowledge, you need scientists. And quite frankly, the, the scale of the problem is so big that there aren't enough scientists to go around and do something about it. So I thought, well, okay, an important process in resolving any environmental crisis, if you like, is to bring the general public along, public engagement. So if we set up a citizen science project, we kind of kill those two birds with one stone because we're engaging with the public, we're increasing their knowledge, we're raising awareness, and we're also collecting scientific data, which can be used alongside the more traditional methods of collecting data. And with this survey, who can participate and how many have already taken part? I think we're on about 2,000 volunteers at the moment. We've got registrations from 
nearly a thousand organizations and individuals, so schools, universities, NGOs, governmental departments, even I had the environmental agency. So anybody can take part. And it's been designed in a way that literally people can download the resource pack, read the resource pack, watch a few supporting videos, go and find a kitchen sieve, make a thing out of cardboard that's 10 centimeters square and take a, a bucket and spade and go and do it. We've got, I think, something around the range of 900 samples from about 61 different countries at the moment. And in terms of collection, what does that in, in, entail? Take us through that. The process is, was designed to sort of reduce the barriers to participation. And in order to get people to engage with a project, you have to sort of give them certain things. They have to learn something. They have to, it has to be easy. It shouldn't cost them too much. It shouldn't take them too much of their time. And it needs to be interesting. So it was sort of developed in that way. And essentially with two buckets, we use what we call a density separation method using seawater. So you'll collect samples of sand from the beach along the strand line, which is where the sort of the tide drops everything at at the high tide level. Collect various samples. You use your phone to get a GPS coordinate of where that is. You collect those samples, you put them into a bucket of water, the plastic in them floats to the surface. You throw away the sand, you keep the plastic, you go home, you then identify what that plastic is using a very simple process, looking at color, shape, size, that sort of stuff. And then you upload it onto, it's not an app as such, it's a, it's a computer program. So the data is digitally uploaded. Uh, you take a photograph of it, upload that as well. And the whole thing is then straight away directly uploaded to a database, which you can then go and see. And what's the value of that information, of that data? So what we've got now is we're starting to get enough data, not only to sort of identify key characteristics. So for example, there's a lot more polystyrene in Southeast Asia than there is in European waters, mainly because they use polystyrene fish boxes and there's a massive use of polystyrene there. So those sort of characteristic analysis can be done. But we're also now starting to get enough data that we can do temporal and spatial analysis in small areas. So for example, I have a group in Thailand on an island in Koh Tao, and they've collected 88 samples from around the island. Now, that now enables me to hypothesize, for example, that we're going to see more in one place than the other, depending on what time of the year it is, or one particular beach has a capture capability of it. You know, why is that relevant? Well, if I've got limited resources and I do decide that I want to go and do something about it, I want to go and pick it up, I want to remove it from the environment, I know where I can go. I don't waste my time and resources doing something that's not, that, that there is no point. So it opens up a huge... Pandora's box of potential research areas. And I think that's quite exciting. And if somebody wanted to become involved in the, the big microplastic survey, how do they go about that? So if they go to the website, it's microplasticsurvey.org. Everything's pretty much on there. It says, there's a sort of heading that says get involved and it guides you to supporting videos, tells you what it's all about. Uh, you download the resource pack and you know, it pretty much tells them what to do. They then go to a beach or a river or a lake or any sort of coastline with a sediment. It doesn't work in big pebble stone sort of sediments, but gravels and sands, it's absolutely perfect. Well, David Jones from Just One Ocean, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. From the seashore to the forest and an update on a topic we first covered on Future Tense in 2016. It's called the Wood Wide Web a very popular theory that trees actually communicate with each other underground. Here's the University of British Columbia's Suzanne Simard explaining the basic idea way back then. So all the trees in the world form what's called a mycorrhizal symbiosis. 
So that means that all of the tree species worldwide require that they enter into the symbiotic relationship with fungi. And these fungi, certain kinds of them, are mutualistic fungi. They're called mycorrhiza, myco meaning fungus and rhiza root, so it's a root-fungus relationship. And these mycorrhizas function by growing through the soil and picking up nutrients and water and bringing them back to the tree. And it's a symbiosis because they live together in a root tip, and it's mutualistic because the tree provides photosynthate in return for these nutrients and water that the fungi gather up from the soil. The reason that we say that the trees can communicate is that these fungi, some of them can actually link trees together. So a fungus that's associated with one tree can grow through the soil and link up with another tree, provided that fungus is compatible with both of those trees. So even if the trees are of different species, if they have a compatible mycorrhizal fungus, they can link up and that there's sort of like a pipeline that then runs between the trees. It's much more complex than a pipeline. It's more like a, a massive network. But it's through that network then that trees can communicate with each other, kind of like along a telegraph or a telephone line. So that's it in a nutshell. As I said, the wood wide web has certainly garnered a lot of attention, both media and public in recent years. But according to new research by ecologist Justine Cast and her colleagues at the University of Alberta, there are now significant doubts about key parts of the concept. I think most of us, we would all agree that it's likely that trees are connected below ground through these what we call common mycorrhizal networks, or as it's more typically known in the public, the wood wide web. So I don't think there's disagreement upon that, but we're not clear on how many trees are connected. Are we talking about all the trees in a forest? Probably not. So there's some discussions just even at that very, very basic level in terms of what do these mycorrhizal networks look like? And then when we move to thinking about the function, that's when we're really, really uncertain. So we looked at those two aspects in our study. So what evidence do we have for their structure and what evidence do we have for the function? Keeping in sight some of these very popular claims that we have also heard in the media and elsewhere. So let's take some of those issues that you raise one by one. The nature of these networks, how widespread are they? So when we look at the evidence, what we found is that there's only two forest types that have been mapped. And when I say mapped, I mean where the trees have been genotyped, so we know which individual trees and the roots which belong to those trees, and where we genotype the fungi so we know what an individual is. It's very difficult work to create these maps. So on one hand, it's it's not surprising that there's not very many of these maps in the world, but we have to keep in mind that there's only two forest types in the entire world that have mapped in this way. And so that includes only two tree species of about 70,000 estimated tree species out there. So we just don't have a good idea how widespread they are or how many trees are involved or how many forests have these mycorrhizal networks because we haven't looked. But as I said, there's lots of reasons to think that these trees are connected below ground, but we just don't know. And I think that is where we need to start, is that we need to do some more of this mapping. We need to look at more different forest types than just the two and get a sense of how this mycorrhizal network, what it looks like. Another premise that you question is whether trees can help their seedlings prosper through fungi, through this network of fungi. Just explain what you found there. 
Yeah, exactly. So there's this popular claim that if seedlings plug into the network, they're going to benefit. And the reason they benefit is because larger trees or other seedlings, part of that network are sharing resources. So we looked at 26 different field studies, and some of those studies included our own. And we found that there's actually no conclusive evidence that resources, so nutrients, water, are being moved through these mycorrhizal networks. So that's inclusive because we haven't ruled out other pathways where some of these resources could be moving that do not include a, a mycorrhizal network. And then when we looked at the studies that measured how seedlings do in response to potentially being plugged into these mycorrhizal networks, by far, the majority of the cases, seedlings, they show no response. They had a neutral response. And in some cases, actually, seedlings seem to do worse in the presence of these connections. In a very few minority of cases, so only 18% of the cases, did seedlings do better and that canceled out the effects of root competition. So this story that seedlings are performing or surviving better, growing better, it didn't uh, stand up to scrutiny. And look, a final claim that's made by those who who put forward this idea of a wood wide web is that trees can actually send a kind of alarm to other trees when they're threatened. You didn't find any evidence of that either, did you? Yeah, we looked and we looked and we actually could not find any test of that claim in a forest. But where the claim does seem to come from is a couple of different greenhouse studies. So I would want the listeners to know that typically we don't look at the outcomes from a greenhouse experiment and then use those to generalize what's happening in a forest. They're, they're very, very different situations. So these claims seem to be rooted in these two different greenhouse studies. And one of them, it does show that when two seedlings are growing in a pot together, and if they're connected by this mycorrhizal network, that there does seem to be some sort of defense signaling that can occur between the two of them when one of them is damaged or eaten by bugs. But in that same experiment, when the roots of the two seedlings were allowed to interact, in addition to forming this mycorrhizal network, that defense signaling was totally canceled. And what we would say is in a forest, you would never find a common mycorrhizal network in the absence of roots. So the results from that greenhouse, it's really unclear how they could be used to describe what's happening in a forest. And in the other greenhouse experiment where they did test kin effects, they found that in half the families that they tested, seedlings, when they're grown with kin, so related seedlings, they do direct more of the carbon to those kin than if they're non-kin. But importantly, common mycorrhizal networks were not involved that small little amount of carbon that was preferentially transferred to kin was just moving through the soil. So why do you believe that this notion, this this premise of a a wood-wide web, why do you believe it's become so popular? Well, I think for many of us, it's just such a cool idea. And when you think about trees communicating and these benevolent fungi mediating that communication below ground and, you know, and there's these images of an internet below ground, I think it taps into some really appealing stories about what we would like nature to be like or how we might want to understand it. And I think too, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that this wood wide web, it's become really popular in the past few years. And it also makes me wonder, you know, in those past few years, we've had COVID. And I think that a lot of us were looking for good news stories, things that made us feel better. And when you hear the stories about the wood wide web, again, it's a very feel good story. Trees taking care of one another when we used to think it was all competition and now it's switching to this other story. And then there are some people that were even using this wood wide web as sort of a framework for how we should be structuring societies. 
so again, I think it just tapped into something deep inside that that's the way that we want to live. It's the way that we want nature to interact. It was just sort of a, a easy bias, I guess, to tap into. And, and I want to be clear, it's not just the public that took up this story, but we show in our, in our paper that it was scientists as well. And when we looked at how scientists interpret some of these original studies on common mycorrhizal networks, in some cases, they ignored the original caveats in those studies. They might have missed that, in fact, this study just mapped a common mycorrhizal network. It didn't actually show resource transfer, but then this original study might be cited as resource transfer. So through the years, through the past 25 years that we've been doing these experiments, the claims have been exaggerated, distorted in a way that makes these common mycorrhizal networks look beneficial to trees plugging into it. Well, Justin Cast from the University of Alberta, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And now to a completely different topic, transport. In particular, cargo transport. Here's one way of mapping the history of transportation over the past 100 years or so. From this... to this... to this... But does the future of cargo transportation sound more like this? Svillan Rangelov is the CEO of a company called Dronamics, and he has a vision to build Europe's first ever drone cargo airline. Well, drones are the next generation of airframes. So when you think about it, it's been decades since we've introduced automation into aviation. A large portion of each flight, even passenger flights nowadays, is done with the help of autopilots. And of course, pilots do a great deal of very important work. What we're actually innovating about is just having the pilots, but separating them from the airframe because separating them from the airframe is now possible with drone technology, especially for the cargo scenario, because for more than 100 years, Airplanes were designed to have humans on board. Once you put the cockpit on the ground, and if it's only a cargo application, then you can actually optimize a lot more over what you're actually carrying, which is goods. And you can achieve tremendous efficiencies, both on the manufacturing side, but also on the operating side. And you can speed up air cargo. You can make it cheaper and more accessible to a larger number of communities around the world. So are the drones that you're developing, will they still have a pilot as such, but just not connected to the plane, you know, uh, doing it remotely, steering them remotely, or will they be automated? Well, they will have more than one pilot. In fact, just like in a regular aircrafts, you have two pilots. Uh, we also have two pilots. They happen to be at the drone ports of origin. And then we have another two pilots at the drone port of destination. And then we have another set of pilots, which is in the network operation center, which is essentially that common command center for the whole country or the whole region from which all the flights are being overseen. We still use autopilot, just like in regular aviation it's being used, but there's always humans in control. And in our actually model, we're relying on commercial aviation pilots, many thousands of hours of experience of flying passengers and cargo around the world. So the bar we set is very, very high. In fact, you talk about your endeavour as trying to create Europe's first drone cargo airline. So the idea of an airline, you are really talking in big terms, aren't you? Well, we have to be because 
ultimately the customers, they are a small village, a small town. They're not interested in purchasing a drone. They're interested in goods being delivered at a reasonable price, lower than before and faster than before. So we have to do that extra legwork. We have to create that service layer and being an airline is the best possible route for that. Now, tell us about the actual drones that you're developing as part of this airline strategy. Sure. So before we start, we started eight and a half years ago. My brother is an aerospace engineer. My background is in economics. So very interested in actually improving supply chains around the world as a vehicle for improving lifestyles and economy. So we looked at any available airframe at the time. And we realized, again, because they were all designed for passengers or for humans first, they were inheriting a lot of design decisions from decades ago. And we saw a lot of benefits by just starting from scratch from a blank sheet of paper, using modern software, using all the latest avionics equipment and, and so on, and leveraging all these advances so that we can create something that is orders of magnitude better, faster, and cheaper. So our aircraft, we realized it's to be small, smaller than a big airplane, because if you think about it in common aviation, you have these very big airplanes that get offloaded into very big trucks, but that very big truck is not who rings my doorbell. It's another smaller vehicle, typically a courier van or a, a car that makes that last mile trip. So we said, let's create actually a smaller building block. Let's create a vehicle that is the size of that courier van, and we can transport 350 kilograms at the distance of up to 2,500 kilometers. So our wingspan is around 16 meters. We're a lot like a single-seat or two-seat aircraft, except we're unmanned and specifically designed only for one job, and that's cargo. And at 2,500 kilometers, that's quite a large range, isn't it? I mean, you could cover, you know, well, most of Europe. In fact, all of Europe in one flight, and we can get to cover all the United States from a single location in the center of the 48 states, the South China Sea, the Caribbean, large parts of Australia. What are the ideal conditions for the use of these type of drones for delivery? What, what areas do you expect to target? Well, the biggest benefit will be experienced by the underserved currently by aviation markets. So here two, tier three cities and towns. So as villages, we optimize the drone to be able to land on even unpaved airstrips. We just need around 400 meters, which is again, like a small bush plane, any agriculture strip would do. Really, if you look at on a global level, less than 1% of global trade moves on airplanes because air freight is so much more expensive, which means that 99 times out of a hundred people will say, or, or don't get that benefit of air cargo. So our sweet spot is in targeting those 99% and those thousands and thousands of airstrips and communities around the world that are not directly served by a cargo right now. And I presume then uh, remote communities, communities that are hard to access for, say, uh, geographical reasons. Absolutely. And that's why being small is actually quite helpful because it's much easier to fill up 350 kilograms of capacity rather than 10 or 20 tons. And you can even with a small form factor like that, you could actually help trade happen point to point. So a small community directly to a different small community instead of having always to go to hubs like big cities and get redistributed, which is what you get stuck with when you have very big airframes and you need to optimize for the capacity. What about the operating costs on this? Because yes, while you've got greater flexibility, because you're talking about very small loads, how do you make that pay? The model certainly gets better with scale, just like with anything. But 
it is a model that reaches profitability quite quickly because of the ability to achieve higher utilization. Again, most air cargo is hovers around 45% or 50% load factor, which essentially means that half of airplanes are empty, are empty, and there's a lot of hidden costs there. We bring the cost down and the operating cost just gets spread through the volume. It works out very well. And that direct connectivity is usually impossible to replace on those routes that we are targeting. And where are you at in terms of the development of the drone, but also of the, the overall airline idea itself? So we've licensed our first airline in Europe. The drone is undergoing right now a comprehensive flight test program. And we expect to have first commercial flights with the drone in Europe before the end of the year. Then we're looking at entering other markets, including Australia, after that. Svillin Rangelov, CEO of the company Dronamics, which is planning to build Europe's first drone cargo airline. Karen Savanovitz was the producer for this edition of Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.